Orgasm episode 89, Kong Skull Island. I have some brief remarks on Kong Skull Island. I mean, this is the most recent adaptation of the original movie directed by Jordan Voigt Roberts. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, it's got a fantastic cast, including Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, Tom Hilson, John Goodman. So where the original 1933 film was about a filmmaker, Carl Denham, trying to make a movie in exotic locations and eventually bringing Kong to New York, this one is more of a sort of lost world survival horror story that's entirely based on Skull Island and there's no third act back in Civilization. Uh, Denham here is replaced by Bill Rander, who is the head of the US government organisation Monarch, and, and played by John Goodman, and he's obsessed with proving the existence of gigantic preternatural creatures. So he assembles this all-star cast of protagonists, including um, Samuel L. Jackson as Lieutenant Colonel Preston Packard, Tom Hiddleston as ex-SAS James Conrad, and Brie Larson as anti-war photographer Mason Weaver. And in this franchise, there's really only three characters that matter. There's Kong, there's Carl Denham, who's the visionary looking for Kong, and there's Anne Darrow, who's Kong's love interest. That's the basis for the 1933 film, all the way up to Peter Jackson's remake in 2005. But this version changes things up a bit. So first of all, it replaces Anne Darrow with Mason Weaver. And Mason Weaver, played by Brie Larson, a photographer, has a much more active role in the expedition and doesn't have this emotional connection with Kong, or at least she alone doesn't have this emotional connection with Kong. And secondly, uh, they add a fourth character to the mix, which is Samuel L. Jackson's Lieutenant Colonel Packard, who makes it his mission to kill Kong. And actually, I guess Packard and Randa together are really two parts of the same character they're kind of a version of Carl Denham that's more focused on revenge rather than fame another thing that changes in this version though is the role of Kong in the story now rather than being a spectacle that Denham brings back to civilization he's a god and protector of the humans on Skull Island and he's also emblematic of the Hollow Earth legend, which is the monarch organization's real agenda to prove the existence of and prepare for giant monsters when they eventually try to retake the world. And Kong is actually all that stands between us and weird subterranean two-legged skull wizards. The last thing that's slightly different is the island itself. You know, as well as being chock full of giant monsters, it's also a kind of Bermuda Triangle with um, wrecks of ships and aircraft all over the place. You know, some with the gashes of gigantic claws, submarines being found an, an impossible distance from the island coast, having been flung inland by Kong or, or another giant monster, I guess. Um, the island is wreathed in lightning storms, which cut it off from the rest of the world. And there are also the aforementioned tribes of humans living here, living under Kong's protection, and they revere the wrecks of ships and aircraft as sacred spaces. More on that in a bit. Now, plot-wise, it has very few surprises, quite frankly. We get a whole load of military characters and a few civilians in search of a mystery, rock up to a hidden island full of dangerous stuff, and they suffer the consequences with only a few survivors and... Crucially, those who have behaved in a respectful and sympathetic way being spared. There are some plot beats worth noting, like there's, there's a prologue of um, two downed American and Japanese World War II fighter pilots 
both crashing on the island, both coming face to face with each other, thinking that they have to continue fighting each other, and then being confronted by the island's terrors. Um, there's also the preamble where Bill Rander draws his team of protagonists together. Otherwise, though, the, the arc pretty much follows a straight line from entering Skull Island to exiting it. And this kind of raised an interesting idea in my head, which is, namely, at what point does the adventure start? In a movie, the prologue is a set piece where the director establishes the characters, but, you know, they're kept on track by the director. There's a, there's a set amount of time. But if you ran a game like the start of Kong... You know, there's a whole load of intercut scenes in various exotic locations where all the characters are showcased before they're all drawn together. And I often feel that for a scenario, especially for a one-shot scenario, doing this is the kiss of death, you know, sort of having this preamble before the action. because Partly because players will want to have conversations with interesting but irrelevant characters you know they want to pursue other plot threads they want to investigate their patrons and so on the more space you give them to to breathe before the um, scene one of the adventure the more time they'll take and i certainly had this experience when running some old white dwarf scenarios at cons i thought i had stripped them to the bone starting totally in media res right at the point that the characters will see action and they still found ways to divert themselves um, not that that's anything on the players. You know, that's that's fair enough. Often in these cases, I think the players were looking for answers that would be revealed later anyway in the scenario. So they their curiosity was, was correctly focused and they were asking all the right questions. They'd simply cut to the chase. I mean, I think this highlights a problem with some scenario writing that assumes big reveals later on in a scenario. You know, it, it treats a scenario like a movie script and the players have to be patient that the thing that they've already drawn a conclusion about and that they want to investigate will be revealed later, but for now they just have to play along. And I, I hope my listeners agree that the game on the table belongs to the players and players should be rewarded for curiosity, not punished, you know? One of the issues that I think there is in Kong Skull Island is that Bill Rander has everyone on the island under false pretenses. Now, he's framed this as a mapping mission, but really he's trying to prove that monsters exist, and, he, and in doing so he puts everyone at risk. You know, he's Basically, he, he witnessed something 30 years ago, and he wants to prove that it's not just in his head. Now, if you stuck Bill Rander in a game, the players would be, well, should be, really suspicious right from the outset you know why do you need a whole load of soldiers with guns and bombs and attack helicopters and an ex-SAS hardman who um, specializes in rescuing people in catastrophic situations for a mapping mission and I also thought compare this with Jurassic Park there you've got a really clear premise for a bunch of outsiders to be dropped into the dangerous setting they're there to evaluate and endorse the safety of the park. There's no, um, there's no obfuscation there of the actual objective. Here in Kong, yes, the, the characters all sort of have a reason to be there because they've been recruited, but I don't think the reason that, oh, I'm being paid a lot of cash to do this is enough. Um, and I think, as a result, this whole scenario should send up red flags to any 
any group of players worth their salt immediately. Um, that is not to say that the initial confrontation with Kong isn't awesome, and it really does set the tone for the rest of the movie. You know, we've had this big build-up from the expedition, briefing room scenes, uh, scenes of fraternising between the troops and the civilians on the aircraft carrier that's taking them to Skull Island. And I really like those bits, by the way, not least for the attention to detail to um, period details, which I'll, I'll get into in a bit later. Um, but the question remains, at what point does the adventure begin? Is it where they are recruited? Is it where all the protagonists are committed to the mission on the ship, but before they fly into danger? Or is it at the point where they ride through the electrical storm and into the lost world beyond the point of no return? And I'm really not sure there is a definitive right answer, but I want to consider expedition fiction in general. So, um, at some point in whatever uh, expedition fiction scenario you've got, um, Call of Cthulhu, Traveller, whatever you like, um, the characters are committed to passing through the boundary that separates known from unknown. And it might be, you know, a, a geographic boundary, it might be a, a, a magical boundary, uh, it could be a you know, teleporting portal, a stargate, whatever. They're committed to it. You can start a bit before that scene, in which case the opening scenes are largely social. Or you can start when they're just going through the boundary. Or you can start when they're on the other side, perhaps when they're embedded in the mystery world. You know, for example, um, in The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, those scientists in The Thing are already cut off. They know that their existence is slightly precarious. Then there's also, I think, the end state to consider, and in Kong and Jurassic World and The Thing, it's all to escape the sandbox, which is quite nice for gaming. You, you can express that, um, you can express the duration of the scenario in, in geographic terms. You know, you have to move this many hexes in this amount of time. And in Kong, they're, they're on the clock. They know that their extraction is coming in three days. And so they have to get from where they are to the northeast side of the island within three days otherwise they're going to be left behind okay some other thoughts um thinking about sort of themes and I'm, I'm looking at my bullet points here one of the things i appreciated which was more stylistic than functional was the sense of period you know it's set at the end of the vietnam war so it's early 70s and what I thought was the director did a really good job of focusing on period technology, particularly cameras. Now, there, there, there's a lot of focus on cameras. Uh, for example, Mason has this flashy handheld camera that she takes all of her stills with. Um, there are lots of people with 8mm film cameras. Um, there are slide presentations where you get a close-up of the slide carousel. Now, I'm... I'm kind of sensitized to this because uh, my my stepdad is a massive photographer for years. He has had a huge collection of slides. I think he's digitized them all now, but it's like I'm, I'm particularly sort of au fait with that technology. But um, and I think it made sense for this story because it's the focus on image capture. You know, what, what matters to the expedition is documentation. And the gear they have is probably cutting edge. Um, I, I will freely admit that my problem is I tend to fetishize old technology, particularly recording media. So 
I am liable to view it as set dressing rather than functional technology. I don't do that for guns, strangely. Um, but I, I do remember an old game of Lace and Steel that I played, which is set in a pseudo-17th century. And one of the things that really brought it alive was the GM's presentation of technology, like um, pocket watches, which were huge, by the way, the size of your palm, um, wheel lock firearms. Now, everyone's heard of, of flint lock, and of course there's match lock, but wheel lock is like this, uh, you know, clockwork mechanism to uh, to spin uh, the um, the firing mechanism and ignite the charge. Um, so in that spirit, uh, I wonder if, rather than dwelling on what's absent in the 1970s setting, like mobile phones, what we should really do is emphasise on what's still available on useful technology. You know, rather than pointing out how old the equipment is, draw attention to the fact that in the period, this equipment is new and useful and cutting edge. It's a resource. It's not a novelty. And I think that would go a long way to making, uh, giving a sense that the characters are believable, competent characters with access to the right resources. All right, what else? Um, I think the last thing I want to mention is the island itself and the way it's collected the wrecks of ships and aircraft and and they're now being revered as sacred spaces by the indigenous tribe. Now, um, this presentation in the film is not exactly as a cargo cult, but it's not far off uh, in a cargo cult. And I hope I'm not being too reductive. Uh, the outsider manufactured goods are assumed to have come from a spiritual origin. But bear in mind... In the film, we see nothing of the islanders' perspective because they're simply unable to communicate with the protagonists. And what that does, it gives it gives us a one-sided impression that they are primitive and that their beliefs, whilst rooted in the truth of the movie, you know, that the world belongs to giant subterranean monsters, still seem superstitious. And... The thing that's only briefly mentioned is that their agrarian society has no conflicts and no concept of possessions or money and so on. Um, I think this would have been a very different story if, say, Mason and, and others had spent time with their society and somehow come to understand the spiritual underpinnings of that society instead of, you know, breezing past it, saying, oh, yes, this proves our hollow earth theory all along, and we have to prepare for the coming of monsters and with more and bigger guns, that kind of thing. So I think that's a... I really think that was the most interesting scenario opportunity to, to get the perspective of these people, because as lacking as they are in technology... They clearly have, uh, they clearly have sort of a a society which is enviable, uh, and I thought that this was a, a, a an interesting scenario opportunity. So that was one thing I thought was interesting about it. Then talking more generally about the the fact that this is this island has collected a whole load of vehicles. There are a whole load of wrecks of vehicles of explorers who have clearly never made it back. Um, that's kind of a, a pretty good template for any scenario. Um, let's say, for example, that Skull Islands is actually some ancient weird planet that's been identified by one or more spacefaring races. And let's say that your explorers are dumped in completely uncharted territory. 
And not only do they find weird monsters and tribes of humans, they also find that they're not the first visitors and there are loads of derelict vehicles that have made the journey before. And those vehicles will tell you a lot about how long people have been investigating. Um, they might have logs which detail exactly why the ship was sent there and what the travellers in that ship expected to find. So I think there's there's this big gap that I think uh, is is a fruitful void that is waiting to be filled by this scenario that's otherwise rather, well, exciting, but kind of pulpy and one-sided and doesn't really get away from the original premise of King Kong. You know, I, I think, you know, Kong is more or less a, as it stands, it's a Call of Cthulhu scenario in which, you know, one of the ancient sanity-blasting monsters actually just turns out to be on the side of good. But it could just as easily have been a traveller scenario. Um, I think the difference comes down to why the characters are drawn there in the first place and what they expect to find. Uh, and if there aren't any expectations set, if the reason for travelling there isn't credible, that's what sets off the red flags. Anyway, um, I think that's about it for what I have to say about Kong Skull Island. Um, is it worth a watch? Yeah, I think so. Despite the fact that it's obviously part of another movie franchise, which is trying to get traction in the post-MCU era. I would have liked to see the roles mixed up a bit more, I think. Um, one thing I thought of was, you know, you cast Brie Larson as Lieutenant Colonel Packard and have her obsess over killing Kong. And then you make Tom Hiddleston Kong's love interest. I mean, you know, he's a good-looking chap. He's bound to turn the head of a gigantic ape. Anyway, thanks for listening. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. The link's in the show notes. Until next time, bye. <laughs>